So, again, you could be turning to Luke chapter 19. We will be ultimately in Galatians 5 today, but that's going to be a while, so I invite you, if you have Bibles with you, in front of you, turn to Luke 19. I told Christy one day this uh, week that it seems like every Easter that I've had so far here in Woodland seems to bring with it for me some tragedy. Uh, may have had an Easter or two while I'm here in the six other Easters that I've been here for. Uh, that wasn't somehow tainted, but you know, one year I had an aunt who passed away. Another year I had a nephew who passed away. Another year it seems like many of my friends were, were losing loved ones near Easter, and now we have uh, COVID-19 over all of us. So it's just been interesting every year. You know, many Sundays throughout the year, it seems like a pastor might have an, an obligation to preach a certain text, you know, and I have nothing against lectionaries. I've thought about using one year, one year for just for fun, but Palm Sunday might direct our minds to that text in the Bible. And in fact, if you've received one of our newsletters from Woodland Friends, The Facing Bench, it shows a sermon that I preached a few years ago from the text of Luke. And whenever I picked that sermon to put in our newsletter, I actually didn't realize the connection it would have to our text today. And, and because I didn't know I was preaching the text that I'm preaching on today until pretty later, much later in the um, week. But again, before we go to Galatians, our opening text is a, in Luke 19. Verses 36 through 40. So I invite you to read with me. As always, I'll be reading the ESV. So again, Luke 19, beginning with verse 36. And as he, that is Jesus, rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way, down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Why don't we go ahead and Say a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for an opportunity we have to hear your word. We pray that you would um, use it to grow hearts and mature saints. We pray that you would use your word to open up people who are spiritually blind and deaf, that you would say a word that their ears can hear. Father, we know that Anything that might move us in the direction of you would come from your Holy Spirit. So we ask the Holy Spirit that you would be the one speaking. Father, would you help us to relax our minds and hearts and help us to put out distractions so that we can focus on what you might say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> when Luke tells us in Luke 19 about a conversation between the Pharisees and Jesus. We should think about Luke's mentioning of them earlier in the book. 
Uh, the Pharisees actually first show up in Luke's account in Luke 5. Uh, many of you might know this interesting account uh, where Jesus is in this house preaching and he's teaching to a, a huge crowd, but the crowd is so big that no one can get in. It's crowded, it's packed, it's stuffed. It's the complete opposite of how our church meeting house looks right now. <laughs> and uh, there is this group of friends that have to get, they have to get their one paralyzed, lame friend to Jesus. They just have to. They know and believe in Jesus' power of healing. And so what they do to get the lame man in front of Jesus, they climb the roof of that house. In that day, many houses had an outer stairwell and a walkable roof, and then they make a hole in the roof, and they lower this man below, and I should say before Jesus. Talk about an interruption of teaching. Do you remember what Jesus says to this man? Luke 5.20 tells us, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Not exactly what somebody might expect to hear. And here's how I used to think about this text. In fact, I believe I preached it this way whenever we were going through it in the book of Mark as a church. I said that the man may have been thrown off guard a little bit. I'm here to be healed. It should be pretty obvious. I'm laying on a mat here being lowered. But you just forgive me of my sins. Because up to this point in the story, the man is still paralyzed. And so I think of it as kind of a confusion, maybe a little bit of a letdown. And so the point being is maybe Jesus is revealing that truly having our sins forgiven should far outweigh any physical need of ours, that, that we come to him with problems that are big to us, but then he fixes problems that are monumentally bigger in reality, just not really on our radar of reality. But I want to suggest another possibility here. And I'm not saying this is right and I was wrong before the theory that I just presented that, that Jesus reframed the problem that is uh, of sin so poignantly. Maybe, maybe that's what really happened. I don't know. But, but that's for a Western mindset. I wonder about the Jewish mind. I wonder about the Jews who see the problem of sin so graphically in the spilt blood of animals at the temple. I mean, you just read Leviticus and you'll see what I mean. See, I wonder if Jews, far more than we Western-minded 21st century non-Jews, I wonder if Jews got it right then and there. I wonder if the lame man, still lame on his mat, I wonder if he did take a genuine sigh of relief that far better than being healed from paralysis, his sins were forgiven. In fact, this is where the Pharisees take argument with Jesus. Again, we're looking at the first introduction of Pharisees in the passage in Luke's book. Luke 5, we read, And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And actually, throughout much of the interactions between non-believing Pharisees and Jesus, we will find that their main argument against Jesus is how he handles sin. See, he forgives it here, 
And then in Luke 5, we have Jesus blatantly dining with sinners. How dare He? And then Jesus explains that He's here for the sick and the sinful, not the so-called righteous and those who don't need a doctor. The Pharisees accused Jesus of sinning and breaking the Sabbath laws in Luke chapter 6. Jesus calls out Pharisees in Luke 11 on being hypocrites. That on the outside, sure, they might keep all the laws, but on the inside, their, their motivations are impure and their hypocrisy is evident. What, what it amounts to is they love all the pride and the admiration that outside law-keeping brings them. And so it could be here that by Palm Sunday, back here in Luke 19, the Pharisees have this, this history with Jesus, Right? You think you can forgive sins and and be God, yet by our standards, Jesus, you're a sinner. You've called us hypocrites and sinners. So much headbutting and sinning here. Around the idea of sinning, I should say. That's where they butt heads. But here's the key point that I, I want us to bridge from Palm Sunday to Galatians 5. And that is what Jesus says to them in return back here in Luke 1940, what we just read Jesus answered to the Pharisees, I tell you, if these, that is, his disciples, were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, this is actually Jesus telling the Pharisees that creation would worship him, which is big in the Jewish mind, because really, Jesus is stating worship due to him is beyond just an ethnic Jewish thing. In some ways, Jesus is saying that he would accept worship, admiration, and adoration wherever it comes from. It really connects back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, where Jesus' cousin and forerunner, John the Baptist, is addressing the same people for the same problems. And Luke 3.8 tells us that John said to them, "...bear fruits in keeping with repentance." And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. And then here is the the phrase that connects it. For I tell you, says John, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And that's the point. The point that both John and Jesus are getting at is beyond keeping the law. True godliness is a fruit bearing repentance. It's the inside being washed out, not just the pharisaical, I can put on a good front while I'm never changed on the inside. And John says it's not even an ethnicity thing. It's a right heart thing. And so that's what Jesus accomplishes for us when he dies for our sins, effectively saving us. See, we we no longer have to worry about keeping the law in an over- studious, pull my hair out, check off my boxes sort of way. But then Jesus gives us His Spirit and gives us His righteousness. And this this goes beyond His righteousness reckoned or credited to my account. He gives us the ability to be righteous. So that keeping the heart of the law is doable because we have the Spirit of Jesus in us to do so. I wonder if you hear that. That's why, where we really pick up the thinking in Galatians 5. And we're going to come back to this, this headbutting between the Pharisees and Jesus. 
Galatians 5 starts this way, and if you listen to our earlier morning announcements, Christy read this for us in full in, in two translations. So this should be a little bit of a second time around. Galatians 5, beginning with verse, verses 1 through 3, we read in our Bibles. In fact, I'm going to ask you to turn there if you have a Bible, because I really want you to be in Galatians. This is where I miss my slideshows because there's going to be a lot of referring to our text, which is why you should have your Bibles open to Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 1 through 3. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. The book of Galatians is is really Paul's most angry book. <laughs> if you read Paul's letters, you're used to most of the first chapter being taken up with, uh, oh, I'm so happy when I think about you, I'm praying for you daily and I remember you in my chains. You know, he's in prison. God's put a special place in my heart for you. You open up Galatians, that's not the case. He gives the formalities. He says, I am an apostle Paul, grace and peace to you, yada, yada, yada. I'm not diminishing those words, very important. But, but then he jumps right into saying, I'm astonished that you're leaving Christ. <laughs> like that's a big accusatory, angry statement, right? Hey, it's me, Paul. So why are you defecting from the church? Why are you trampling Christ through the mud? What's up? That's the tone. And the Galatians are are doing that because they think to be really holy Christians, you need to be Jewish too. (laughs) That thinking is still around today. Just going to say it. That in order to be a more holier follower of Christ, we need to be more Jewish. The majority of the New Testament from about Acts 15 and onward for the most part is about how that is precisely not the case. Just putting that out there. Galatians then is Paul saying in 47 different ways, a lot more holier and righteous than how I'm about to put it here. You're dumb if you think you need to be more Jewish to be a better Christian. That's why I didn't write the Bible. Paul says it a lot better in a key verse in Galatians 2.16. Turn back a page in your Bibles if you're there. Galatians 2.16. It says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Did you catch that? Faith in Christ equals justified. Do you understand justified? Declared righteous. Being brought before God and God the judge hammering the gavel saying, you'll live, acquitted. Why? How? Paul is saying the only way how? Faith in Christ. The way that does not work and never works are works of the law. That is, doing what the law of Moses tells us to do. No one. How many people, Kevin? No one will be justified that way. And so, 
Out of the 47 ways that Paul says this, here's Paul's point here in Galatians 5. It's really a profound, but not so much just obvious, like duh, statement. Hey, why did Christ set us free? That's, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And maybe you'll catch it better in the HCSB. Christ has liberated us to be free. Like, duh. As in, why did Christ set us free? I don't know. Freedom? Right? Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do you hear Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the the zealous Jewish man who, who once persecuted Christians, maybe in fact helped if not assisted directly in killing some Christians. Do you hear Paul here? He says, stand firm, therefore. Stand firm on what? On what Christ has accomplished. Our salvation through His righteousness. Our being justified, our being declared righteous in front of God because of what He did. And then Paul has the audacity to say, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's strong words for what? He's talking about the law. He's saying that's slavery. You're a slave to your own deeds. If you're so worried about doing right, being right, checking boxes, crossing T's, dotting I's, if you open up Genesis through Deuteronomy and you pull out a pad and a pen and say, okay, what do I do? You're putting up on a yoke of slavery that is unnecessary and in fact is an affront to God. Paul is now going to use circumcision as a catch-all phrase in some ways for the law. Why? Circumcision was such a strong symbol of the Jewish people. And we say strong because it's kind of a big deal. You know this if you're a man. That sort of symbol is a very physical sign in a very significant place. And so Paul says in Galatians 5.2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. That's a big statement. (laughs) Don't gloss over these big statements. Paul says, if you accept circumcision, and, and I want you to know if you're hearing this, Paul's just not talking about circumcision in the medical sense. But if the Galatians, a Gentile, Gentile meaning not originally Jewish, who weren't circumcised, If they say, well, I'm part of the faith now, I'm part of the church, Jesus was Jewish, Jews were circumcised, and circumcision is in the law to be part of the covenant people, I need to do that. Paul is saying, if you're going to get circumcised, because it will make you feel more holy, it will appease your conscience and make you feel really saved, if you do it for that reason, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Wonder if you hear that. This means Paul is accusing the Galatians wanting to be more Jewish. And in, in, in doing so, in wanting to be more Jewish, they are negating, they are minimizing, they are diminishing Christ. If they're, if they're basically saying, what you did on the cross is not enough. I need to circumcise myself too. 
This still happens today. It may not always be circumcision, but I'm just going to start offending people because this is called the offense of the cross, so why not? How about bacon? Pork? Not eating it for religious convictions. We're saying Christ's sacrifice on the cross is not enough. I also need to stop eating bacon, pigs, and pork, and restrictions of it are in the law. We can't eat it. How about the Sabbath day? God really prefers Saturdays as church days. It's I'm more holy because I have that figured out. Saturdays are the only day he accepts worship. It's in the Bible. His name is Yahweh. It's not God. It's not Jehovah. It's only Yahweh. And if I call him Yahweh, he's doubly impressed with me. And if you call him God, or if you pray to Jesus or the Holy Spirit, but if you don't pray to God the Father, you're in the wrong. It's in the Bible. I'm going to codify it into our Constitution. Don't get me started on preferred Bible translations or preferred end-time theology or and holding up those as untouchable Orthodox standards. And Paul is saying a very serious thing, I might add, Christ is of no value to you. Now, most people who hold their weird pet doctrines would take offense at that. Christ means the world to me. What are you talking about? That's the point. Has Paul got your attention? And I don't say that to Paul, I don't say that to say that Paul is trying to use shock value. He is 100% serious. He's not trying to grab your attention to say something else. He's grabbing your attention with the truth. Christ is of no value to you or me. If you or I are hung up on circumcision or something else other than Christ to think that we need to be saved. Verse 3, Galatians 5. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Are you ready to go to the whole law? Do you want to stone disobedient children? I have a disobedient child. I don't want to stone him. Do you like seafood? Do you like bacon? Do you like meeting with me on Sundays instead of Saturdays? The whole law, we're talking upwards of 613 laws. Now, we can write those down and send them to you, but it would be a vain pursuit. Paul explains back in Galatians 3, 10 through 11. Galatians 3, 10 through 11. He explains it this way. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. I said that slowly, hoping you'll receive that. Because that's the point. Christ has freed us to live in freedom. Such a better route to take. But if you're going to dismiss Paul here, if you're going to downplay what he says, if you're going to say, Kevin, you're just preaching to me bad theology, and and I like the fact that I have discovered the wonderful truth that the Sabbath is Saturday worship, or I love the fact that, that I don't eat bacon and I feel holy about it, I love the fact that it's Yahweh and not God, whatever your pet doctrine is that you think makes you more holy, and that's the key. I want you to know, I'm not bashing on preferences. 
I'm not bashing on. The Old Testament talked about this practice. I'm practicing and it's helpful. Great. But if you're doing it out of conviction and the belief that it is the final icing on the cake that's getting you into heaven, you are in danger. You are in absolute no joke. Listen up. You are offending God. Danger. Paul says this in verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. If you're a Calvinist or if you're a half Calvinist and believe in once saved, always saved, or if you believe in never losing your salvation, I'm sorry, all Paul's saying right here. If I came to Galatia and preached Christ and you got saved, and now that you've gotten your own Bibles and now that you've studied and you say circumcision was a big deal in the Jewish people, if God's going to save me, I need to be circumcised. If you're going through with that, Paul is saying you are forfeiting salvation. Big, true, accusatory, harsh, 100% factual words here. Paul has, or excuse me, Christ has offered grace. 100% free. He's true about the way he offers it. Your sins are forgiven. I have forgiven them. I've died for you. And then Jesus says, now I want us to be in a committed Loving relationship where you die for me with your hearts. I want obedience born out of love. And Paul is saying Christ's sacrifice for you means nothing and comes to nothing. And in fact, you forfeit, you nullify what he's done whenever you start to believe. I need Christ and blank. For the Galatians, it was circumcision. But like I said, it can be anything. Bacon, Sabbath, Bible translation, whatever else you think makes you more holy than others to be saved. See, there is no blank. There is no Christ and. To suggest a Christ and is ludicrous. It's blasphemous. It's offensive. It's outrageous. And it's not an oopsie. It's a deal breaker. It shows that, that we have no idea what Christ has done whenever we say His broken body and His spilt blood is not enough for us. When Christ dies for you, when God dies to save you, and it's not enough, you need to rethink it. Paul points to the other way of faith in Christ is the only means of salvation. He says in Galatians 5, 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So Paul brilliantly is guarding against heresy in the wrong direction here. Because here's what happens. Some people hear Paul and they think he's preaching a cheap grace, right? That, that, that whenever he says Christ alone saves, accept what Christ has done and live free lives, live free from the law. Some people think he's saying just accept the fire insurance in Christ and live like you want to. No. Do you hear the language of relationship here in Galatians 5, 5 and 6? See, some people want a relationship with the Bible. 
But what Christ offers is a relationship with the author of the Bible. Do you hear the difference? Suppose you could meet any author you wanted to. I like old dead theologians. So suppose I could meet John Wesley. What Paul is saying here is like me saying to John Wesley whenever I'm in the room with him, just hold on, be quiet, John. I'm trying to read a great book from you. It's called A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. But just be quiet, John, while I try to understand it. Now, of course, the stupidity in that is that I could have the man himself say it to me in his own words. What Galatians are doing is receiving Christ, who is God in the flesh, and receiving His Spirit. But now they're going back to the Old Testament, and they are applying their own interpretation of the Old Covenant, which we're even told in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that a new covenant is coming with Christ, and the Old Covenant will be done away with. But these Galatians are ignoring Christ, ignoring God, and instead they're doing what they think God wants by their own thoughts. They're like Kevin in a room with John Wesley, reading John Wesley's works, telling John Wesley to shut up while I try to figure out what he's saying. Paul says back here in verse 5, that through faith in Christ, we are inviting the very Spirit of God, the author of the Bible, into our lives. And in doing so, we eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. That is... The kind of righteousness that God wants from His people is now birthed in us through the Spirit. And because the author of the Bible is in our lives working this righteousness, bringing about the kind of righteousness He looks for in our lives, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You hear that? If you Galatians who are not bound to the Old Covenant seek circumcision as a means of salvation, you're on a useless pursuit. It counts for nothing. It means nothing. It doesn't give you any brownie points on the holiness scale. It doesn't do anything whatsoever. Take out circumcision, put in your pet doctrine. You holding to whatever end-time theology counts for nothing. In salvation, you holding to Saturday Sabbaths means absolutely nothing concerning salvation. You and your preferred Bible translation that you think everyone should read if they were really holy, whatever, that doesn't matter. It does not matter. What matters? Faith working through love. That means you can take a breath, all you people who think Paul is talking about cheap grace. When the author of the Bible is in your lives... Truly, works will come. The righteousness that God wants in a person will come. In fact, Paul would only say it verses later in Galatians 5, 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. That's how he opened Galatians 5, 1 with. Christ liberated us to be free. But then 5, 13 continues. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Do you hear that? But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So do you you see how he still upholds the law for a purpose here? He says the law is good. Love people. That's a good thing. 
But here's the thing. Go back to my John Wesley illustration. Suppose I wanted to not only understand his book, A Plain Account of Christian Perfection, but but say if I wanted to live it out. Say if I wanted to know it experientially. I wanted to walk, talk, and breathe that book. What Paul is saying is that John Wesley basically possesses me and does just that. But now my illustration breaks down because nobody should seek to be possessed by John Wesley. The point is, is to have the Holy Spirit in us is to have the author of the Bible in us, the author of the law in us, to do righteousness in us. Paul goes on to say in Galatians 5, verses 7 and 8, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. See, it's so sneaky. It's so ironic because how many of us, when we think we have that little and part, right? Jesus and. We suddenly think, wow, God's given me the inside track. For the Galatians, it was circumcision, the covenant sign with Abraham. Just that little boost. God must be calling us towards this. We need to be on the inside with him. But this persuasion is not from him who calls you. If you feel like you need something more than Jesus to be right with God, that's not God telling you that. Paul opens up Galatians saying this, Galatians 1 verses 6 through 9. Again, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, here's, listen to this, Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Derailment happens. And all that's needed is a little leaven, a little extra. Well, yes, Jesus saves you, but sometimes it emerges as a strong suggestion. Jesus saves you, but let me show you some differences in Bible translations, and you'll see why this one translation is God's ordained one. Or, or Jesus saves you, but let me go through the Bible and show you Sabbath and, uh, on Saturday verses, and you'll see how you're a, really a disciple of Jesus if you go to church on Saturday. And for the Galatians, it's, it's Jesus saves you, but God's chosen people from the get-go are circumcised. And so if you want to be saved, you need to be circumcised. And, and they, these are suggestions backed up with clever-sounding verses. But before you might think, how can I tell right from wrong? Even Paul shows up, shows hope in the Galatians, which is very refreshing because the whole book he's bashing on him, but he shows hope in them. He shows hope in the church. First, first we know this because he's writing them. So that just tells us that he hopes and expects that they're listening. But then here in verse 10 of Galatians 5, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. I have confidence in the Lord. Friends, do you want to know how derailments start? It usually starts with people. 
with books that aren't the Bible, with teachers who propose ideas that you can only get from their teaching on the Bible, not the Bible speaking for itself. And I know how it goes. Yeah, but they showed me the verses in the Bible and those verses sound like what that teacher says that they're saying. The evangelist John writes 1 John for similar reasons that Paul writes Galatians. False teachers are trying to distort the gospel. Only Paul was guarding against Jesus plus something else saved, while John was guarding against Jesus is not who he says he is. False teachers were saying that he's not a man or he didn't come in the flesh. He's not the Christ. Do you know where John rests his hat on trying to convince readers to stick to the truth? See, what are you and I to do when we're afraid that our discernment may wear thin? What if we are led astray by bad teaching? And you're like, watching you is doing this, Kevin. No, anyways. <laughs> I want you to turn here in your Bibles if you're watching. First John chapter 2, if you have Bibles in front of you. First John 2, I'm going to reference some verses here. It would be good to have in front of you. First <clears throat> John chapter 2, verses 23 through 27. Let's read that together. I will find it in my Bible. Here we go. John says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just that it has taught you abide in Him. I saw three primary safeguards that John presents in here. This is why you need your Bibles in front of you. In verse 23, John says, Confessing the Son. That is, believing that it is Jesus who saves you. Believing that what Jesus said is true and what He did is enough. That's the first safeguard. Secondly, I see in verse 24, falling back on the essentials of the gospel. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. That is, you and I are sinners. We need a Savior. His name is Jesus. His death and resurrection assures our putting to death sin and our rising again to live like He lives. That's the gospel. That's it. That's what's needed in Galatia. Jesus alone saves me. Nothing else is required. The third safeguard here in 1 John 2, namely verse 27, is it's a favorite among friends, among Quakers, and that is trust the Holy Spirit's teaching. His anointing teaches you about everything. We have no one, we have no need for anyone else to teach us. In other words, if a teacher is laced with statements like, you need to hear what I have to say to save you, not true. I'm sorry, but not true. You have God, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And though not in John's day as much as we do, we also have the Word of God in our hands. So we have the Bible and we have its author. Don't tell me that I need something that only you have to give me so that I might be saved. So again, Paul used that, that second safeguard in his letter to the Galatians. Do you remember how he opened up the letter 
We looked at it in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is saying, we've given you the foundation. We brought the essentials of the gospel to you before. And he's going to say it plainly back here in our primary text. Galatians 5, verse 11. So turn back to Galatians in your Bible. Galatians 5, verse 11. Paul says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. See, I wonder if you hear Paul's argument here. He is saying, in essence, when we came to you and brought the gospel, I don't remember bringing circumcision as a necessity required for it. In fact, Paul didn't. And he's receiving flack for it, apparently, apparently from the Galatians. That's why he's having to write them back. And then here's the rub of his argument. Here's the reason I entitled my sermon the way I did. If Paul did preach circumcision, if you and I did need something else to be saved, well, the the cross might not be offensive to us. Because here's what I've been saying the whole time. Here's what the gospel is. You can't do anything to save yourself. And if you thought you could, you really offend God. The prophet Isaiah has an interesting phrase in Isaiah 64. Isaiah is prophesying in a time of great hypocrisy and depravity among the nation of Israel. I know, sounds like their entire history. But in Isaiah 64, Isaiah, the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, the one set apart by God, throws himself in this lot, saying in Isaiah 64, verse 6, But we all are. You hear that? He throws himself in there. We all are as an unclean thing. And all are righteousness is as filthy rags friends the cross means you need saved the cross means you can't do anything to save yourself and in fact trying to do so are like filthy rags i dare you to look up the original meaning of that word it's a little bit unpolite to mention it in public now don't hear me wrong The Bible is clear. Paul says in this passage that we studied in others that good works follow being saved. But that's an important order. Good works follow being saved. But doing good works to try and be saved in the first place, that's where Christ is of no advantage. I hope you hear that. And so as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday... And his disciples sing out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Maybe, maybe most of the disciples were thinking one thing, and that was a, a physical salvation from Rome at the time. But, but Christ truly brings peace in heaven. Because the price of sin and the sting of sin and the wages of sin and the death sin brings is all paid for in Christ. And it wasn't by human effort. No, indeed, it would be offensive to God if man said, I have earned my way. But Christ has purchased it 
for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're, we're talking about a, a slippery slope here that many of us might be tempted to point the finger at other people, other groups, other religious groups who call themselves Christian or other people and say, wow, that person needed to hear it, but, but why did I need to hear it this morning? What am I saying that, what am I telling you that I'm guilty of and that I, that I think I need to overcome if you truly are going to save me? Father, you have saved me and you've only saved me through Christ. That doesn't mean I should go on sinning. Of course, I need to feel conviction and I need to repent of sin. But at the same time, help me to, to learn the balance of, of how to confess and repent of sin. But at the same time, resting in what you have accomplished in saving me. Help me to rest in, in the fact that my salvation is secured through you. Help me to not neglect that salvation. Help me not to neglect that grace that you give in saying that I need to do something else to be saved. I don't. I never have and I never will. You have saved me. Father, the cross is offensive. It's telling us that we've sinned so much. We're so desperately in need of salvation that we can't even do it ourselves. We've never been able to. But at the same time, that offense should lead us right back to you because you have saved us. And in your love and in your grace and your kindness, you spilled your blood for every single person who would accept you. Help us to accept you daily with our actions, with our words, with our motivations. We thank you for that. Help us to bring this, this truth, this hope to each and every person who would hear it. And especially help those who are blind and deaf to you do a work of grace in their hearts to bring them into the light, to open their eyes, to open their heart, to see the truth and the hope and the peace found in you. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.